Washington is broken. Citizens are distanced from the government they elected. Are we at a crisis point? In this episode of 92Y Talks, join two U.S. senators who both have a track record of getting things done. Cory Booker, New Jersey's first African-American senator, and New York's Kirsten Gillibrand, who pioneered a culture of openness in Congress. This conversation was recorded on February 21st, 2016, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Well, welcome everyone. It is so great to be here at the 92nd Street Y for another amazing book event. Um, and I get to be here with one of my best friends in all of Congress and certainly in the Senate, Cory Booker. Uh, he has written an amazing book. You must have this book. And I loved reading it because not only did I learn a lot about Cory and what kind of person he is, but I learned a lot about what he learned as a mayor. And I love that he takes the reader along with him as he sees things he's never seen before, as he's seen a level of poverty that affects families so incisively and so desperately, and then solves the problems. It's, it's an amazing, aspirational book about how love can change anything and any problem, but also how each one of us will learn how to be stronger and make a bigger impact uh, just by listening and being very present. So thank you for writing this book, Corey. Time out. <laughs> um, so uh, this is the, we are actually really close friends in the Senate. She's one of my favorite. She's actually my best mentor in the Senate, and she gave me unvarnished advice. And I have to say at the outset that um, she embodies the values that I try to celebrate here. I've never met somebody in uh, all of Congress who lives her heart on her sleeve unapologetically. Uh, what she's done for victims of sexual assault, what she's done for uh, gay and lesbian men and women serving in the military, what she's done uh, for 9-11 first responders. She locks onto an issue tenaciously and does not let go. And she's the reason why we've seen some incredible successes in a Congress. People say we can't get things done. And so I just want to say one uh, how how blessed I feel to be sitting here with her. And when we're together, we will try not to, um, right now, uh, and the lights are down, we might forget that they're there and just start dishing ourselves. Yeah. Well, um, but I'm very grateful to be here. Thank you very much. And, and by the way, I just finished, I'm embarrassed because she wrote this amazing best-selling book uh, called Off the Sidelines. Uh, and I just finished her book. And I was sitting there doing my uh, cooking while I was listening to it on <laughs> audio tape. And there's one part that really made me cry, uh, um, which I think tears are good for food. Um, um, tears of love. Extra salt. Extra salt, exactly. <laughs> So I'm psyched to be with you. Thank you, Corey. Well, let's go right into the book. Um, probably the story I love the most is about this incredible woman, Miss Virginia Jones. And she was a mentor to Corey. I mean, he had some amazing mentors in his life that just gave him the best advice. But this is early on uh, about a place where Corey lived, Brick Towers. And he wanted to change the world and help the people who live there. And she tested him, and at one point she says, you say you want to help, this is page 39, but first you need to tell me something. You need to describe to me what you see around you, describe the neighborhood. And then Corey, of course, describes a lot of buildings and what he sees. But then she says something really important. Tell us about that moment and the life advice she gave you, and, and whether you still use that life advice today. So um, I, I uh, grew up in a, in a relatively privileged uh, area, and my dad... Uh, really tried to, as my parents were raising me, not let me forget how blessed I was to grow up in this um, rather relatively affluent town in northern New Jersey. My father would, you know, look at me walking around with more 
teenage swagger than any of your children have. Um, you know, my dad would be like, boy, don't you dare walk around this house like you hit a triple. Uh, you were born on third base, young man. Um, <laughs> and so uh, for reasons I explained earlier in the book, it's, I felt this calling to, um, to try to do great uh, feats of service. And I, I'm coming out of Yale Law School, and I decide to follow the call of a great American prophet um, that, you, that we study at the rarefied institutions in our country. Um, some of you might have heard the, of the prophet. His name is Chris Rock. And, um, <laughs> and uh, so Chris Rock has this joke where he says, why is it the most violent street in every city? It's often named for the man that stood for nonviolence. And in, in Newark, actually, Martin Luther King Boulevard, even in the mid-90s during some tough years, still glorious sections of the street, but the South End was something like I had never seen before. And I had worked uh, in nonprofits everywhere from East Harlem to East Palo Alto, and I had never seen open-air drug dealing punctuated by violence. Uh, I, I moved into a boarding house next to a crack house. And... There's an old saying of faith, which I know you know actually very well, uh, Kirsten, that, that you, when you come to the end of all the light you know and you're about to step into the darkness, faith is knowing one of two things is going to happen. Either you'll find solid ground underneath you or the universe will send you mentors or teachers to teach you how to fly. And so I moved onto the street, had things stolen out of my car, literally as I'm moving in, me and my best friend carry stuff up, come back to the car, it's stolen. But I'm told that I have to meet this woman who is the tenant president of these high-rise projects that are across for me that I eventually moved into. And I go seeing her like I'm John Wayne, uh, you know, riding in on my horse to save the world. And uh, I think I might have even called her Little Philly at some time. <laughs> I'm here to help you, Little Philly. And, uh, you but did she, not say but that. I did not say that, no. <laughs> but I, but I was, I was ter terribly uh, bordering on the territory of arrogance. And she, this woman, had, had, would have nothing to do with me. She seemed gruff and tough and sort of, uh, made me sit there. I tried to talk to her earnestly about all the great things I wanted to do in the community, and she barely looked up from the papers when the phone rang. She just abruptly interrupted me, and it was just very, it was sort of a comeuppance for me. Uh, and amidst all that, she takes me to the, to, the, to the street of Newark in those early days and just says, okay, you want to help me? Show me what you see around you. And I described the tough neighborhood, and then she just looked disgusted, if not uh, disappointed, if not disgusted, and she says, you can't help me, and she starts walking away, and I sort of go after her and grab her, very respectfully, mind you. Um, <laughs> and I say to her, what are you talking about? And she looks at me and she says something that still resonates with me today, especially when I'm amidst challenges. She goes, uh, boy, you need to understand something. That the world you see outside of you is a reflection of what you have inside of you. And if you're one of those people who only sees problems, darkness, and despair, that's all there's ever going to be. But if you're one of those stubborn people who every time you open your eyes, you see possibility, you see hope, you see love, you see the face of God, then you can be one of the, those people that helps me. And she leaves me on the street. And, and the powerful thing, and I know you know this from, from running your book, is that the story would go on. I, I move into the buildings, we join together, we fight the slumlord, he gets convicted. There's highs and horrible, horrible lows. But you think you know your stories of your life. Um, but I went back with, for this book and I decided to interview people. And I interviewed a lot of people around Miss Jones, who's now passed away. And they were like, no, no, you have the story wrong. And I go, what do you mean? And Miss uh, Jean Wright, who's this amazing tenant leader that worked with us as well, she goes, Corey, that first second she met you, as soon as you left her, uh, she started right then calling you her son. And uh, even the guys on the street uh, who were dealing drugs, who I went through a lot of effort to track down to write this book and interview them and get what they were saying, one of them made me uh, get very emotional when he said to me, I had some conflicts with them uh, where I thought there was going to be trouble. I found out through my interviews that one of the guys who ran 
the drug uh, trade there had said, oh, I intervened because they were planning on shooting you. And I looked really horrified. And he says, no, no, don't worry. They were just going to shoot you in the leg, man. It was just a one <laughs> And I was like, um, I was like, oh, okay, fine. And uh, so I talked to one guy who, who said, basically he said, Corey, she came to us and told us to back off because you were family. And so the powerful thing about her, about vision, is she had this transformative vision that the way... You know, often what we think about things or say about people is more a reflection of who we are than who they are. And, and she found this transformative power began with always opening your eyes and not focusing on the darkness, uh, not ignoring it, but understanding that, that your, your vision is going to shape the ultimate reality. And she became uh, a tough, she was relentless. There were some moments in the book that, uh, where I wanted to, oh, I wanted to... <laughs> Uh, um, but but she she really is uh, one of my great life mentors. Yeah, uh, I think she had your number from she the beginning. From she the knew moment. just what would work on you. Yes. I uh, tell you that you're not good enough and aren't seeing it, and it made you work hard. Yeah, it was like the military. She sort of broke me down and, and then built you up. Built yeah. me up. She had me caring, yeah. doing menial work. Well, you say about her that she had an infinite reservoir of love, and yeah. and and that takes me to something that you talk about in this book that that frankly I see every day in Washington. Uh, you know, a lot of people say Washington's broken, but I can promise you the biggest problem in Washington is not uh, the partisan rhetoric. It's not the inability to work together. It's truly the lack of empathy. And anytime you see an issue that's not getting done, it's because the people involved don't care. They don't care enough to get it done. And you talk about that really directly in here, about the empathy deficit, not just in Congress, but in America. And you say, people's inability to see what's going on in the lives of their fellow citizens, to understand what so many Americans endure, creates an atmosphere that allows injustice to fester and proliferate. I think we need to talk about how can we change this? How can you, you know, even in your own life, uh, what Ms. Jones was telling you is to you have to love, you have to care, you have to, have to empathize, and then see what's possible. How do you think you and I, or anyone in this audience, can change that empathy de de um, deficit? Well, uh, so th th that's one of the central pillars of this book. Uh, the, the folks who are teaching me uh, that this world is in desperate need of courageous empathy. People right. who can see beyond their own circumstance and, and tune into other folks. And um, my, my, my mentors and my parents were really on me about not getting, not making the mistake to think that this means you have to do these courageous acts, uh, leap tall buildings, uh, pass big pieces of legislation, um, that indeed my, my parents would tell me that I'm the result of a conspiracy of love, that, that it's really the aggregate actions of hundreds and thousands of people um, you know, I know my father was dislodged from poverty, from generations of poverty, because people saw his circumstance, saw him as a child of God or, or as a fellow American citizen, and did these small things that saved him. Mm -hmm. um, um, and so I think the book for me, a lot of it was me confessing when I failed uh, to see outside of my circumstance, I failed to see that person um, that was right, often right next to me, or even worse, where we build walls around us that, that inhibit our ability to recognize the suffering and the challenges that other people are deal dealing with. And I, I say all the time, we should never allow our inability to do everything to undermine our determination just to do something. And the, probably perhaps the most painful story about this lack of empathy for me was uh, when I moved into Brick Towers and now I'm living in these buildings, 
And I lived there for eight years, and I, I literally watched children turn into young adults. And I was coming home every day, and we live in a, in a, in a nation that has tragically different justice systems depending on where you are geographically located and what your socioeconomic status is. And I grew up in this uh, uh, afflu relatively affluent town, went to Stanford, Oxford, Yale, and I saw tons of drug use, uh, but nobody stopping and frisking young people coming home from a frat party, nobody's raiding dorms, uh, nobody is uh, uh, um, uh, persecuting the drug war in places like I went to, but it is in, in Newark. And, and the reason I say that is because I started coming into the lobby, seeing this group of boys that were hanging out, and seeing that smelling marijuana, and then seeing some gang tags. And I knew that their margin for error was not like the kids that mm. I grew up. And one mistake, given the, the I mean, if you're African American, you have no differences for using drugs and whites. But you're, in America, you're 3.7 times more likely to be arrested for drug use. And if you're arrested for the same drug crime, you're, you're going to get about 20% longer sentence. And then when you come out of prison, um, the chances of you now reintegrating to society that won't let you have a Pell Grant, won't let you have food stamps, won't let you have business, many business licenses, won't, can't get many jobs, you've begun this down, downward spiral. So when I saw these kids, I said, okay, I need to do something. I know these kids. I know who their parents are. And especially one who was this guy that was just like my dad, his name is Hassan. He was dynamic, he was funny, charismatic like my father. Both he and my dad, born to a single mom, poor, raised for a time with his grand, the grandmothers. He lived four floors below me, and I, I intervened to, to help these children and, and began to take them out to movies. Which movie do you want to go to, I asked them. They said, I thought it was, a, I thought it was like a, um, a home improvement movie because they told me they wanted to see Saw 2. And I'm like... <laughs> You okay. did not. I did. Take you did to, not. I took him to see Saw 2. And, and then we took False. him to... <laughs> and then we went to the diner, and, and we, had a, we, had a, we had a really uh, good time, but then I got busy, which we all do, and I got so absorbed in my life at that point, which was running for mayor, and I became so busy, I didn't have time to follow through on the mentoring relationships, but these kids, to me, during this mayor election, where I was working around the clock, I would still come home, and they were still there for me, hanging out in the lobby. One day, they had taken a bunch of lawn signs and created, like, a little parade for me to walk through. And, <laughs> and you know, imagine that. You're tired, down, and these kids are reminding me what it's all about. And I waved to them and got in the elevator, and elevator doors closed. And, of course, I think to myself, where'd they get those lawn signs from? <laughs> But I, I, win, I win the mayorality the whole time saying to myself, when I'm mayor, I'll be, then I'll be able to help all the kids of the city. I'll be able to help these children. And I become mayor, and I immediately had some uh, serious, credible death threats. So they wrapped security around me, the best security the, the, the Brick Towers had ever had. Um, but when you're kids, whoever we are, we didn't like hanging out places in lobbies where there were police officers. So they, I didn't see them. But I was off trying to save the world, trying to be the mayor. I have my brass ring. And uh, a few weeks into my job, I've been, I was started showing up at every shooting, trying to let residents know this is not who we are, we're gonna fight this. And I show up at my job and uh, at a shooting and there's a body covered, one being loaded in the ambulance, and I didn't even stop to affirm their humanity. I didn't ask their names. I was too busy tending to the living and I, I'm talking to the senior citizens that were gathered. And I go home that night, late at night, I get home, security in the lobby, now I have escorts riding around in a fancy SUV, uh, I get home to Brick Towers, I go up to the top floor where my apartment is, and I sit down on my couch, and I'm reading through the Blackberry about the police reports for the day, and I see homicide, and I, I, I didn't see the name, and it is Hassan Washington. Yeah. And um, I, I tell you, I, I start the chapter this way about going to his funeral, which was in a, Perry's funeral home in Newark, it was a basement, I descended into this basement like it was going into the bowel of a boat, 
People piled on on top of each other in grief and sadness, chained in agony as we were watching a, a routine American reality, another kid in a box. And I couldn't, I, I suddenly, it was just, all my status was stripped away from me. I, I felt impotent, I felt uh, not mayoral, and I couldn't stay, and I ran out of the, of the funeral home, ran to the mayor's office, slammed the door, locked it, and for the first time as mayor, at this point of power in my life, I just wept like a, a kid, and I realized I had betrayed my history. I realized that uh, I crowded in, and all of us were there for this kid's death, but we were not there for his life. And, and it, it reminded me that the biggest thing you can do in any day um, is it, not a speech, not a uh, whatever big project at work. The biggest thing you can do in any day is always going to be a small act of empathy, of compassion, of kindness, of love. And that this is what has sustained our country. And in, and in fact, it's what has advanced our nation uh, towards our ideals. And, and it's something that you live, uh, Kirsten, and, and it's really one of the main messages of the book. Without a doubt. And I think it's the most powerful message of this book. I thought the story of Hassan was so heartbreaking. And I thought you encapsulated this ideal um, about moving beyond tolerance to love. And he has this beautiful quote. It's, it's on page 107. He says, um, tolerance is becoming accustomed to injustice. Love is becoming disturbed and activated by another's adverse condition. Tolerance crosses the street. Love confronts. Tolerance builds fences. Love opens doors. Tolerance breeds indifference. Love demands engagement. Tolerance couldn't care less. Love always cares more. And I felt like that was such a challenge to me personally, to all of us, how can we become more engaged in the world around us? How can we care more about those we live with, our community, those who have much less than we do, those who have many less opportunities? And as a mom, I'm always struggling to teach my children that. And you know, even, even uh, yesterday, I gave Henry the challenge, I want 10 acts of kindness today, because he was in such a bad mood. <laughs> I was just trying to flip this kid's mood. And um, but for us in our jobs, Corey, this is not an easy thing. I mean, we don't talk about love in Congress. We don't talk about, you know, <laughs> kindness in Congress. Uh, we just don't talk that way. And um, obviously this gets, you know, uh, into the presidential debates and with the Pope, you know, criticizing Trump because of uh, being unchristian-like by talking about building fences. But that is what you are talking about here can you just give a little guidance to this audience about how does one try to live their life that way and how have you changed your life learning this important life lesson at such a you know, seminal part of your early career? So if she can call lie on something I'm, uh, I'm doing, I'm going to call lie on what she's doing because, um, first of all, you exhibit, I know enough about your personal life now. I just had dinner last week at her home with her kids. Uh, I, I just finished reading her book. And your book is replete with these stories, which is understanding that James Baldwin said so profoundly um, when he said children are never good at listening to their elders, but they never fail to imitate them. Mm. And, and, I, and I watch the way you raise your kids. It's not the things you say to them. It's those small things that you demonstrate. You are a United States Senator, Kirsten, but I see you so focused on the little things. And, and the reason why I'm calling baloney, as, <laughs> as, as a vegan, that's hard to do. But I'm Very hard baloney. to do. Very um, hard to do. Is because I, so again, um, I, I, and I talk about this in the book, about this idea of modeling and how finding models is so important. And so I come, I'm new to the Senate, and Kirsten pulls me aside, sometimes with colorful language. And um, I am a New Yorker after okay, all. Okay, yeah, and she, <laughs> and she just gives it to me straight. But then 
about, she has very little patience, uh, Kirsten, for things that waste her time because um, she, she's so um, focused on achieving things. And so what I love about you, though, is you, you know the power of relationships in the Senate, that actually having friendships with people. Um, Kirsten and I are in uh, uh, you know, Bible study together. Uh, we're not the most pious people in the world, but it's a great time to share spirit with Senator Inhofe. Or, and lots or, of Republicans. Um, lots of Republicans. <laughs> <We're>... <laughs> let's just let's <laughs> let's just say let's just say she and I are minorities in that. <laughs> but um, but uh, I, I found myself that by not by again it's that idea of sight. If we see people first in those shallow conclusions, you are a Tea Party person, yeah. you know, you and I have, wouldn't have a bill with Mike Lee and, mm -hmm. and Rand Paul, but, but since we first look to them as we're, we're in this to get something done, it makes a big difference. Yeah. And so I just challenge that because you practice that every day in the Senate, and it's helped us to move things forward. Um, when, you, when, you had, when the 9-11 uh, first responders were down there, the, the, that bill got moved because you exposed people you would force them to see um, 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 uh, people who would in instantly activate their heart and their compassion. That, that bill was passed because of love. Right. And we may not say that word a lot, but that is a, a, a transformative Only thing. Only way it works. Only way it works. And so, th so that's the rub for me is that we are a society that somehow has begun to, to herald tolerance. We are a tolerant uh, nation. Mm -hmm. But that is not something to me to be heralded. That is a lazy, uh, cynical, uh, uh, it's the floor. The ceiling of what has really got us to where we are is a, is a love like this country hasn't seen mm -hmm. because we're a nation that wasn't founded on a common religion because we all looked alike or what have you. We were founded on these ideals that should, should transcend our differences. Our differences matter, but our country matters more. And, and what I get frustrated about is that trying to move this nation from tolerance to love is that we, we, we say these love words all the time. Patriotism by its very self means love of country. But what gets me is that people stop there and don't realize that if you love your country, you must love your country men and women. And that love is not a soft thing. Love is understanding and recognizing that I'm not just stomaching your right to be different, but I recognize that I need you. I, I actually recognize that I, can, I, I value you, that, 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 that we have an interwoven destiny. And, and if you read the Declaration of Independence, and I'm the first person to admit that our founding documents are saturated with the bigotry and hate of the time. Native Americans are referred to as savages. Uh, women aren't referred to at all. African Americans are fractions of human beings. But that spirit is still there. In this Declaration of Independence, written in that is the first sign of this interdependence that we are as a nation. We herald rugged individualism and self-reliance, and I love those themes. They were taught to both Kirsten and I by our families, but rugged individualism didn't get us to the moon. It didn't build, it didn't map the human genome or build our roads and bridges. And, and, and as it says in the, in the Declaration of Independence, I, we pledge to each other mm. our, our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Right there was an admission that we can't move forward as a country unless we have that kind of loving action. And so this to me is, is something that should be discussed in our civic space. We should not be afraid of, 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 of the word love and what it really necessitates because I tell you right now, it was love that took teenagers uh, up, uh, 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 up the hill of the beaches of Normandy. It was love that made people leave their homes, black and white, and board buses knowing they would get bombed, uh, knowing they, they would get beaten. 
I am here, and, and the example I give in the book, one of the many examples I give in the book, you know, when you go back and you interview people, I, I, we moved into the town I grew up in because of extraordinary acts of courage by folks. My parents had to get a white couple in 1969 to pose as them to integrate Harrington Park, New Jersey. Most of the towns of Bergen County were not letting blacks move in due to real estate steering. And it was this fair housing council, this gritty, tough group of blacks and whites who were fighting this. And so I'd said, the story of my moving in is so dramatic, I, I didn't want to tell it in the book unless I could fact check it. So I started calling up, I met the 90-year-old, uh, almost 90-year-old head of the Fair Housing Council, still that's there, uh, and I started tracking down the lawyers because when my parents went to buy the house, it was sold. When the white couple, the test couple, volunteers, act of love, it was still for sale. They bid, put a bid on the house, the bid was accepted, and then on the day of the closing, instead of the white couple showing up, my dad did any volunteer lawyer, act of love. Um, uh, and then the lawyer was punched by the real estate agent. Um, <laughs> An act of? Act of. Um, <laughs> and then, and then, passion. Passion. And then the real estate agent literally sigged a dog on my dad. Um, oh. and, and don't be too upset because, you know, my dad loved to tell the story. And every time he told it, the dog, dog. got bigger. Um, and, um, <laughs> It went, from, it went from Toto to Cujo uh, in the span of my lifetime. But, so I track down this lawyer and I say to him, um, you know, Mr. Lesman, I'm Cory Booker. I'm, and he interrupts me, I know who you are. Um, and, I'm, and I'm like, sir, I don't know if you remember that, what you did for my family. And he, we start talking about him working for the Fair Housing Council. But he started, him and his partner, Leo, a Christian and a Jewish guy, two, two, two lawyers joined in a partnership, struggling to make it. And he, he said, I said, why would you get involved with the Fair Housing Council, especially as urgent as you're trying to build a, a, a law firm and, and take care of your families? And he goes, well, Corey, it was a Monday. And I'm like, how do you know it was a Monday, man? I can't even remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. And he said, I remember it was a Monday that I came to the office and I said, Leo, we got to go to Alabama. And I'm like, Alabama? And he says, we got to go to Alabama because um, uh, that Sunday was Bloody Sunday. Uh, or the people on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Mm. And we were so disturbed by that that we were ready to pack up our firm. And then we realized the dollars and cents didn't add up. We couldn't leave. And so we said, why don't we do the best we can with what we have where we are? Perfect. And they reached out to the Fair Housing Council. And one of those early files they got was a case file of a couple named Carrie and Carolyn Booker. And, and that small, I don't know if any of those people, acts of love on Edmund Pettus Bridge, knew that instantaneously, they would activate the love of someone in New Jersey who would then engage with the Fair Housing Council, which would change the course of a destiny of a family. And this is the reason why I'm sitting here. Every one of us has, by, if we do acts of compassion, acts of courageous empathy, we begin to unlock chains of events that will ripple out into history. And Alice Walker, I think, says it the best. She says, the most common way we give up our power is not realizing we have it in the first place. That's right. And so we are powerful forces of love who should never settle for tolerance when we were called to doing greater things than that. So uh, that's a perfect segue. Um, to an issue that needs a great deal of empathy and love, and that's criminal justice reform. And you talk a lot in the, ba the book about the state of our prisons today, the mass incarceration, our broken criminal justice system. Uh, you say we have slightly more jails and prisons in the US, 5,000 plus, than we do degree-granting colleges and universities. In many parts of America, particularly the South, there are more people living in prisons than on college campuses. 
So the stories that you shared here and the injustice of so many of these statistics, particularly on how the criminal justice system has unfairly affected people of color, um, this is a really hard issue to fix. Um, but you're working really hard at it. You're part of a group that's written a really strong criminal justice bill. Why don't you tell our audience a little bit about some of the things you hope to accomplish and why it means so much to you? So um, we, our nation is, 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 this is a cancer on the soul of our country in ways that most people don't understand the gravity of it all. And we have a nation right now that is singular on the planet Earth. We have 5% of the globe's population, but one out of every four imprisoned people on, on the globe is in the United States of America. And what's worse about that, not just the egregious waste of dollars of this recent phenomenon where the prison population in America has grown on the federal level 800% since 1980, on the state's overall 500%, costing us trillions of dollars as we were disinvesting in roads, bridges, the speeds of our rail. Uh, we were the only area of infrastructure. Other countries were increasing their GDP, percentage of GDP investing. We were decreasing, except for one area. We were building a new prison during the time I was coming out of law school and, and before I became mayor, a new prison about every 10 to 12 days. But besides all of that, if you look at who we're incarcerating, uh, beautiful people from Baldwin to Mandela have quotes about, if you want to see the true character of a country, don't go to their halls of power and wealth. Visit their prisons. Mm. And so if you visit American prisons, it's almost like we went over there to New Jersey, and it is New Jersey, to see the Statue of Liberty. Um, <laughs> and and so one, a smattering of Jersey people just applauded. Um, but if you read the whole poem on that, which is, a, read the whole poem, many people forget the, the, the second verse, but it talks about the wretched refuse, the tempest-tossed, poor, homeless. And then it should say at the bottom, if you look at our prisons, send us these people because they're exactly who we're going to imprison. Because our prisons are overwhelmingly poor people, mentally ill, overwhelmingly the addicted, and then profoundly people of color. And it's, we feast upon the most uh, vulnerable folks. And we create, in many ways, the very outcomes that we deplore because we actually make our streets less dangerous, taking away the thousands of collateral consequences when people come out of prison, leaving them with no options, but often going back into the dangerous world of, of drugs. We, we drive uh, um, uh, a greater hospitalization. I can go on through all the data. Much of it's in the book. But let me finish by saying this. The great thing about it is there's another way to do this. And we actually have enough evidence now to show that there's, there's a way to go, do it that's cheaper, makes us safer, uh, reflects our values better. And the beauty of it is that in, in Washington now, I've created a host of legitimate friendships with everybody from the Koch Brothers Senior Council, a, a really good man, uh, Mark Holden, to Newt Gingrich, Grover Norquist, every stage of the political uh, spectrum, from Christian evangelicals, libertarians, fiscal conservatives, who all understand that this is profoundly perverse. And so we have a piece of legislation that is slowly moving. It's actually a little bit in peril uh, now. It's, I, don't, I don't know if you heard about this, Kirsten. Something happened with the Supreme Court recently. Um, um, but, uh, but this is this is a fight for me because of it, it impacts every American in ways that most of us don't appreciate. In fact, Vanderbilt just came out with a study that says we would have 20% less poverty in America, which means creating all that much more wealth if we had the similar incarceration rates as other nations. And so uh, the final thing I say, and I think Kirsten helped to do this uh, on a lot of issues, that, that change the, the, the sort of 
axiom, the statement that's often said in Washington is that change doesn't come from Washington, it comes to Washington. And if a lot of Americans know the things that are happening in our name, where we're grinding people into this criminal justice system for doing things the last two presidents admitted to doing, um, that, that when, we, when we bring people to, to courts uh, and put them in a broken system, it's not uh, uh, you know, Jim versus uh, John Jones, it is the people, us, or the state of New Jersey or New York, us, Verses. And these things are happening in our name, and, and we have to start understanding that this won't change unless we're willing to speak out, act out, and engage on this issue. I couldn't agree more. Um, we've, got, <laughs> we've got about 20 more minutes, and I've got five questions from the audience, and I can combine almost all of them. But the first one uh, is standalone. Um, and this was my last question, so I'm combining it with mine. What advice would you give to aspiring public servants? This is from Luca from New Jersey. And I want to just to add to this question, um, your book talks a lot about mentors. And uh, if you were to mentor a young woman or man who wanted to be a public servant or who wanted to make a difference, what advice would you give? Well, I hope that in many ways this book, part of it is a love letter to points of advice I got when I was, especially when I was young and hit brick walls, uh, there's, a, there's a scene in the, uh, in the first chapter about, uh, and you're a mom, so I hope you understand that mothers have this power uh, over their children that even when they're you know, 45, 46 year old senators, they can still make you feel like you're 12 years old. Um, and, um, and so my mom, you know, I started tuning her lectures out uh, at a very young age, because of course I learned everything I could from my mother. Now that I'm older, I'm like, every conversation I'm dying to talk to her about things. But she met me at a point where I was at a, a low point in trying to figure out what to do with my life. And she, and you and I talked about this because you love this parable as well. So I won't ruin the story except to say that one of the key questions she asked me is, what would you do if you couldn't fail? And um, it was such a reorienting question for me. Uh, as she put it, how are you going to orient your life, Corey, fear or faith? And if you've got faith, and, and you should have faith earned, as Baldwin would say, you know, where American history is a perpetual testimony to the achievement of the impossible, uh, where, where, where you've been given all these blessings, um, that you should live a life more courageously with faith. And so th there's a lot of things that I think are important, but the one thing I want to say, um, perhaps, uh, is one of the best advices I've got. When you try to act faithfully, when you try to live uh, a courageous love, um, I promise you this, and, and perhaps it, so, it sounds like a bad thing to promise, but if you live a life of courageous love, and I've seen you in, in these moments uh, that you've allowed me in your life, Kirsten, if you live a life of courageous love, you will get your heart broken. You will get your heart crushed. You will, be, you will open your heart up, and it will be uh, brutally assaulted um, because love is the more difficult way to go always. Mm. And so the question is, is what do you do when courage to you is defined not as the big roaring speech, but courage, we've all been there, is just waking up and putting your feet back on the ground and going out into this world to, for another day of loving. And so perhaps one of the most broken moments of my life happened in, that I detail in the book was when I had lost the mayoral election um, that I really believed I was gonna win. Mm. And um, I just advise, this is a small piece of advice, uh, to um, people who have spectacular failures. It's to have a documentary team there to capture it because... Um, <laughs> um, 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 so, <laughs> really important. Snapchat your failures. It's very cathartic. <laughs> very, very cathartic. <laughs> um, and so I, 
it's a long time between elections, and I'm back in Newark, and I'm watching things happen that are breaking my heart. And amidst that was a horrible, violent incident that I happened to be on the scene with, with my dad um, and was there with a boy as he died. And it, it, it is, sometimes I get mad at movies for making gunshot wounds seem all heroic and uh, people having sort of glorious, it is gruesome, it is bloody, um, um, and, I, and it shook me to the core of my being. It was very traumatizing to me personally. And it was around a time that my dad, who is the most optimistic, upbeat thing, said something to me that almost was like a punch in the gut. He didn't intend it this way to my generation of Americans, uh, particularly African-Americans, where he said, I worry, son, that a boy born like me to a single mother, poor, um, uh, in a segregated environment, we still live in a very segregated country, would have a better chance of making it if they were born in 1936 than born today. And when I looked at the data on young black boys, one out of three, if we don't change things, we'll go to prison, um, that the leading cause of death for young black men is murder. Um, and I started thinking about the differences of his generation and mine. It was, it was a painful punch, where, as I say in the book, I wanted to yell back to him, not on my watch, mm -hmm. we're going to change this. Yeah. But I, had, I didn't have any of that spirit in me. I was so broken. And, uh, and so the, 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 the message I, I want to answer, the, the, the lesson to say is that I woke up this morning after this horrible murder early, left, walked through the lobby of Brick Towers, um, which was now in the worst shape it had ever been. Um, the buildings were literally falling apart. And, but as I walked through the uh, lobby, an echo of a memory that Miss Virginia Jones, this titan of the tent leader, her son was murdered in that lobby, and she didn't leave. She, I know what she, money she made. She could have left. She could have moved out. Uh, but yet she stayed in the saddle as a leader of this community. And just as I walk out of the lobby, the courtyard is empty except for me and a woman whose back is turned to me, and it's Miss Jones. And I'm feeling like I am 100 feet underwater, drowning, gasping for air. The images of this uh, dead, dying boy seared into my mind. I'm angry at America. I am so angry at this country uh, that this kind of carnage goes on daily. Uh, I, I was just feeling that the words of this nation that we swear, we swear it as individuals that this is going to be a country of liberty and justice for all. Now they were searing in my heart like a wound. And then I see her and I stop and I look and I look and I feel her and I feel her spirit and her courage. And then just as I'm about to break, she turns around and she sees me and she doesn't say a word. This five foot tall woman, I'm six foot three, a lot bigger than her, but she throws open her arms and I, 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 I hustle over to her and she hugs me and I start sobbing onto her mm. shoulder and then she says to my broken heart and to me, something that I don't think is about religion, but I think it's about love and love of this country and what you need if you're gonna love this country. Uh, she starts rubbing my shoulder saying, two things over and over again, two words, two words, two words, that I still say to myself to this day when things get tough or when my heart gets broken. And the two words were just, stay faithful, stay faithful, stay faithful. It's so unbelievable. I mean, this book is incredible. I hope you all buy it and buy it for your friends because it's, um, it's really a personal story from the heart and it's about Corey's personal journey, his transformation, his life lessons, and he received a lot of life lessons for a lot of good reasons. Um, 
So now I want to turn to some more questions from the audience. They're all about politics. Okay. <laughs> so, so, so the, the, the which the, means we have to answer them, so right? So the heartfelt <laughs> part of our conversation has just ended, uh, and now we are talking about everything else. Okay, I'm going to start with the easiest one. Okay, thank God. Okay. Um, okay, because we might run out of time. Yeah. No, I might filibuster. This one's really good. No, no. <laughs> No, Corey would never do that. <laughs> never, never. Short and sweet. Um, okay. What qualities, besides six foot three, handsome from New Jersey? Don't forget bald. Bald is very important. Bald. Should Hillary Clinton's <laughs> vice presidential pick possess? <laughs> These are your fans, Corey. Okay, but your first of all, fans. But you, you understand that. Uh, Quid pro quo, Clarice, um, that I will get back at you for this moment. Fair enough. Um, so look, somebody... It's somebody... <laughs> a question. It's right here. Yeah, I so... did not make it up. Right here. So lovely it, it, You could have skipped that car. <laughs> I'm doing all of them. We only have free, four more. Free I'm doing will. all of them. Um, so um, look, it's, it's, it's really... I, I, excuse me. I added the six foot three handsome from New <laughs> Jersey. She did not write that. <laughs> she did. was very thoughtful yeah. and just said, what qualities should Hillary Clinton's no, vice no. presidential pick? You're, you're throwing it out because she is the only senator of my 99 colleagues who has fixed me up on a blind date. Too um, bad. <laughs> um, and I'm so, still looking, still looking. So, um, it, <laughs> <laughs> I thought we weren't going to talk about love anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, we, we, you and I both are just in this very tough election to get uh, Hillary Clinton to be the nominee, and that's really where the focus is. And, um, and so. I will, I will say this just as a funny moment, because I, I love Twitter, and I've been trying to get my uh, Senate colleague here to invest more of her time, her un, unlimited, un, un, not very limited time, to just tweet a little bit more at me. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, somebody tweeted at me, will you be Hillary's VP? And I tweeted back, of course I will. I will be her, I announced today that I will be her vegan practitioner. Um, <laughs> uh, um, so that, that's my plan. If that's she perfect. needs some vegan but advice. But what do you think, okay, to the substance of the question, I mean, we could just ruminate a little bit. Um, you know, who will she pick? I mean, I have no idea, but I think she'll pick the best person for her ticket. But yeah, I, that, she, I don't I, have other... I hope she picks somebody who's ready to be um, president. I yeah. hope she picks somebody that... Uh, and I'm sure, sure she will. I shouldn't even project onto yeah. her. She's such a... She, she's a... You and I both know her. She's one of the more outrageously competent human beings. Without a doubt. Um, um, and so... And I've discussed policy with her, and she's wicked smart and thinks about nuances and things like that. For so sure. I think she will have this down. Yeah. Um, I just want to win because I have a feeling that they're the nominee on the other side. Well, well then um, this is to the next question. Oh, okay. If Trump wins, if Trump becomes president, what do you think we could expect? <laughs> Certainly a large wall that he's going to build. I, I, I can build that. I, I've heard, no, in all seriousness, I mean, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. When someone tells you who they are, believe them. Right. And, and he's already outlined what he wants to do in his like, first 100 days from um, sort of like everything from crazy stuff that is so, in my opinion, anti mm -hmm. the spirit of America when it comes to Muslim Americans. And, and, you, and so Kirsten led a Codell um, to Middle East that I, that I went on. And one of the, uh, I was about to say one of the best Codells I've ever been on, but I've only been on two. Um, it's okay. <laughs> um, but uh, but it, we, it was a, it, you, you assembled an amazing group of senators, or eight of us, mm. and it was a, all about to really focus on the challenges with the Iran uh, deal. So we started at the meeting with the IAEA, IAEA in Copenhagen, and then we went to Israel. In Vienna. 
Sorry. Vienna, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, and then we went to um, Israel, met with Netanyahu, yeah. leaders of state. Then we went to Saudi Arabia, again, uh, meeting with uh, inspiring leaders there, in this case, women leaders. Uh, and then we went to Turkey, uh, meeting with uh, Erdogan and uh, other folks. And what, what sort of sobered and almost saddened me was how many times we got from Muslim Americans, be they uh, Palestinians, we met with the, 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 uh, uh, the mayor of Bethlehem, to Saudi Arabian women, to leaders in Turkey, high-level leaders that you would think would know that this is not America. But they all were asking us concerning questions about how we were treating Muslim Americans. Would this country be changing its, uh, policy. its, its policy? And it was so, we had to defend, basically, that the stuff coming out of the Republican primary was not... It's not America. Uh, not America, not American policy, and nor would it ever be if, if we had our way. So this is what... what the, you know this from being in public office, the power of your words, yeah. you really get to see that they, that they resonate. And, if you, and so if you're gonna open your mouth, you know, we all have a choice to make every moment of our lives, to accept things as they are, or take responsibility for changing them. Right. And, and so, when we, and I don't do this, I, I fail at this every day, but when I open my mouth, you have a choice. And not, I'm not talking about the specific text that you're gonna say, the words you're gonna say, but I always say you're either going to tell your truth um, and, and, and expand light, or you're going to lie and diminish your truth and light. And so I, I worry that when we have opportunities, when we do get a chance on a stage, and a stage could be anything, it's just what you do and how your kids observe you dealing with the hassle of fighting for carry-on space, that makes a big impact. Um, 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 it's a story my dad told me, my dad told me so many stories as a kid about the two boys and their father walking in. They asked how much is the... To, what's the age for, to go into the circus at the discount price? And they said, uh, you have to be under 11. And the guy goes, okay, my boys are 11. I'm going to pay for them. And the guy goes, well, why did you tell me that? Uh, I would have never known. And he said, but my boys would have known. Yeah. And, and so I, I just think that, that, that we should all be thinking about the words that come out of our mouth. And this is something that's important for the primary right now. I often see people on our side of the aisle um, um, who are, think they're advocating their position um, instead of doing it on a, a level that, that elevates light, mm -hmm. they engage in, in crass, Without demeaning, basis. dark. You don't need to do that. If folks on the Edmund Pettus Bridge can stare down Alabama state troopers, um, hatred and vile bigotry, but still retain their light of peace and nonviolence and love, uh, then we can do that in our daily interactions and how we talk to people and how we greet people. I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> So we have two more questions. Um, this one is also about the election. The, the person says, considering the record voter turnout for Republicans, what can Democrats do to address this issue since the turnout has not been as robust in regards to the general? And I, let me combine this question with, you know, how, how can we work harder to make sure our democracy works? And, and this is a very broad question because you know, we have uh, gerrymandering, um, which when um, districts are made to include all Democrats or all Republicans, one of the outcomes is it really stretches the electorate to the edges, to the, to the absolute margins. So arguably, uh, legislators are less inclined to work together, to work on a bipartisan basis. Um, when you have unlimited funds th thrown into campaigns with no disclosure, it undermines voter turnout because all you see is negative ads. Uh, all this undisclosed money overwhelmingly go goes to ne negative ads. And so, you know, one of the things certainly I care deeply about is um, 
campaign finance reform and publicly funded elections, but we have all these structural challenges that are constantly undermining our democracy and about people having the right to be heard. And then you add to that all the civil rights violations and the Supreme Court knocking down the Voting Rights Act significantly. It's a huge issue. Uh, maybe speak to any of those issues to, to this questioner's um, thrust of how do we make sure our democracy actually works when we have all these challenges? So, th so what I don't understand is, is people who become cynical. It's, I think it's one of the most toxic spiritual states. It puts you in a position where you have an inability now to detect faint hope amidst glaring uh, problems. Uh, I think cynicism, in fact, is a refuge for cowards because you do open your arms and says, well, I can't do anything about the problem, so I'm just going to disengage. And that disengagement comes with, in fact, the disengagement itself is a political statement. Um, and, and, and I've learned the hard way, you know, when I went to vote in 2008 in Newark, New Jersey, I was mayor of the city. I roll up on the polling place. And I know how genteel and sweet New Yorkers are. Um, but in... <laughs> But in New Jersey, we keep it real. So when I rolled the vote my, in my polling place, uh, the woman at the end of the line doesn't say, hello, Mr. Mayor, it's so great to see you. What a historic day. Um, um, are you here to vote for, President Obama, for, for Senator Obama? But no, the woman at the end of the line looks at me and says, don't you think you're cutting in this line now? <laughs> <laughs> I don't care who you are. You're not special. You're going to wait like the rest of us. And I waited in this long line wrapped around the building. It was, it was an exciting experience to see something I'd never seen in my polling. One year later, there was a gubernatorial election in New Jersey. Uh, the incumbent, John Corzine, was running up, up against a guy that you guys over here in New York probably haven't heard of that much. Um, <laughs> um, but his name's Chris Christie. And, yeah. and I go to vote, and nobody is at the polling place. I go in, and the poll worker's there, and I hug her because she looked lonely. Um, and, and, and then the election's over. Chris Christie wins. Um, and I see the polling numbers that if we had just voted in major New Jersey cities, Patterson, Trenton, Camden, at 75% of the Obama turnout, mm -hmm. then Chris Christie wouldn't have won. But this is what got me, is then lots of folks, I'm mayor of the city right now, are coming up to me and saying, they just cut funding to Planned Parenthood. They're closing around New Jersey and shortening hours around New Jersey. They just raised the, 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 there was all this talk about not raising taxes, but when you cut the earned income tax credit, you're raising taxes on poor people. People are complaining about that. The number one pe reason why people miss school, New York, New Jersey, and the number one reason why kids miss school is asthma, and, and suddenly our state was pulling out of regional greenhouse gas agreements. Then they're cutting funding to cities, and every major city in New Jersey is cutting their police. Yep. Um, and people are saying to me, why are they doing this to us? And I'm like, we didn't, they didn't do this to us. Yeah. We did it to ourselves. Yeah, we weren't heard. We weren't heard. So all of these issues you bring up, they can change the way we draw our district lines, uh, uh, campaign finance. It's going to be a heck of a fight. But to check out and do nothing about it, what if the people who would never see abolition, never see the end of slavery, but they still fought, people who organized, tried to organize unions and got beaten, not only did they lose their livelihoods, but many of the early labor organizers lost their lives. They would never see it, but they didn't give in to cynicism. They kept fighting. That's our tradition in this country. And, and so King says it the best, where he says, the problem today, what we're going to have to repent for today, is not the vitriolic words and violent actions of the bad people, but the appalling silence and indifference of the good the people. The rest of us, yeah. yeah. And That, that goes right back to where we started with the culture of empathy. I yes. mean, truly, like we, all of us have to rise up, demand change. And, and you know, when you mentioned the 9-11 health bill, the only reason why we passed that bill, besides John Stewart, was because of um, the incredible work of these first responders just demanding action, chasing senators down the hall, asking for meetings, not leaving 
those buildings for week after week until they were heard. And right, that's but, truly... But I, I, but I give you, and you give John Stewart, he deserves a lot of credit, but I give you a lot of credit because, you, you know, you talk about this in detail in your book. This is, I always say that we need more poets in, in America, people that can call to the moral imagination of our country, that can prick the consciousness of others. The greatest activists who get things done find a way to penetrate walls of indifference uh, and awaken that, that courageous empathy. And so I, I loved how you had your strategy, your po different points about how you're going to get that message out yeah. to people. Because that's one thing I, I do. And uh, people who are skeptical about their fellow Americans, I actually know my country that when they see a problem, yeah. when they really confront the, the, the raw, ugly truth, the wretchedness of the realities that go on, we have shown a capacity of, uh, in, in, in ways that other planets on this, uh, other countries on this earth haven't shown to rise up with waves of empathy and love. And, and I think that's what your book's going to accomplished, Corey. I really do. If everyone takes the time to read it, you'll see things you've never seen before in this book. Well, and, I'll, I'll give you this because and, and it will work. This is your last two minutes. This is my last two minutes. And I'm, I'm, so so um, another one of those, again, a lot of the book is my comeuppance is when I insult a t another tenant leader, I'm just, I'm, I'm a very bad actor. And um, because I don't think I can, I didn't think I could make change. I, it's a chapter called Do Something. And um, I have this conflict with Miss Jones about this tenant leader that I've dis disrespected. And Miss Jones does something that was one of those moments I felt like um, 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 being very disrespectful to her as well. But long story short is that what I decided to do was this uh, creative protest where I'd go on a 10-day hunger strike and sort of challenge people to help me. And it was one of those moments where I just sat back in my life and witnessed this country come forward because thousands of people, suburban towns, mayors came down with their police officers. Everybody sort of showed up. Job training folks came out. People got hired there, health screening. It was this amazing odyssey. Um, and, 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 and it sort of ended with this final prayer, which I describe. But I just know that, that love transforms. And one of the more interesting moments of that um, where, uh, uh, and by the way, my editor was here, Mark, Mark Tavani, he was just an unbelievable human being in his bedside manner because there's a few times he had to talk me off the ledge. Um, <laughs> um, and... and uh, but, you know, one of those sections I really uh, um, love was this moment where I've fasted for 10 days. I've been praying and everything. Yeah, that's the only thing I noticed. I said, oh, my God, how did he not eat for 10 days? She, she actually called me I, up I about texted, that. <laughs> how did you not eat for 10 days? But the moment I, that, that may sound weird to end with in the last moment here was then Sharp James shows up. The, this is my adversary. This is the guy that I had fear and anger towards. But there was something about those 10 days of witnessing human kindness and love, fasting, that when he showed up, I actually saw him as a human being. And, and uh, I, there was a moment, that the picture is actually in the book. Yeah, where you hugged. Uh, where we hugged. Yeah. And, um, and I remember in that embrace, actually smelling him. And that was the, that was the, the thing yeah. that some of my early readers thought was strange. And, and when I breathed him in, suddenly it was all these things I projected on him, all this emotion I projected on him, the smell, he smelt like older uh, black men in my family. Mm. And, and I felt this connection. And when I left off the embrace, he turned then, and I used the Star Ledger article, he turned then and changed towards me. He announced, put away his prepared remarks, said these profoundly kind, predicted my future morality. Many people were shocked. 
Um, and it was a moment of coming together. Now, look, things fell apart. We eventually ran against each other. He made promises that he would build a park. He didn't build it. I became mayor eventually. We built the park. But the point uh, uh, really is. Yes, he did. Yes. <laughs> but the point really is, is that that final prayer, when we all join hands, I, it's the weakest I'd ever felt physically in my life from fasting 10 days. Um, but I felt so much power. There were rabbis and imams and, and priests and ministers there, old and young, believers and non-believers. People were praying in Spanish and Hebrew and Arabic. And I just heard the echoes of our ancestry, that we really are a nation that is called to live out our hallmark of those three words from a dead language, e pluribus unum. Mm. And that if we can resurrect moments like that in our own lives um, and recognize that we're not alone in the struggle, we're not alone in our, in our despondency sometimes or our frustration, but if we can find ways to, to, to bridge distances, make new connections, not only will we change things in the present, but we will indeed change this nation for generations yet unborn. Oh, thank you, Corey. This is amazing. Thank you. Thank you to Corey thank Booker. You. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org.